the average citizen is going to get hammered unless we find ways to access the enormous amounts of wealth that we have in this country to address these problems. What we need to do is dump cash into the bank accounts of the American people and keep them going until we get through this pandemic and then maybe we can pick up where we left off. All of these issues compound in ways that you only learn about in a crisis unless you've been paying close attention. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, one American capitalist's desperate attempt to save us from ourselves. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Hello, podcast listeners. We're back. Me on a proper mic and Nick, you from your secure location. Yes, indeed. We're here this episode to uh, answer questions, your questions about the coronavirus pandemic and its economic impact. So, Annie, we got a lot of questions from listeners, I understand. Yeah, we got a flood of questions. We got voicemails. We got emails. We got Instagram DMs. They're coming from all sides. Okay. Okay. Okay, you ready to go? Absolutely. All right, so the first one is from email. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the upcoming economic crisis and how bad it will be. Personally, I think it will be much worse than 2008. Given the title of your show, what do you think will happen? Will the government and wealthy elites step in to help the rest of us, or will the pitchforks start coming out because the current administration and majority of wealthy people couldn't care less what happens to us lesser folks? Anyway, love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Well, I mean, you know, let, let's just address directly, you know, will the government and wealthy elites step in to help the rest of us? I mean, I think that that even that framing is a neoliberal framing. No society should need permission from wealthy people uh, to operate in a high functioning way. Uh, but for sure, you know, if the government is run by people like Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, you can guarantee that wealthy citizens will not bear their fair share of the burden. Those people see their role as defending economic elites. Goldie, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it not true that every single Republican member of Congress has signed the No New Taxes Pledge, Grover Norquist's No New Taxes oh, Pledge? absolutely. I, it may have changed in the last couple of years, but it's been that way for uh, well over a decade. Yeah. More right. than that. So in a society where 100% of the Republican members of Congress have signed a pledge saying they will never pass a tax increase. They will never vote a for a tax increase <laughs> of, of <laughs> any kind at any time for any reason. That's right. Uh, but will the revolution come? I, I don't know. For sure, the average citizen is going to get hammered through this process unless we find ways to access the enormous amounts of wealth that we have in this country to address these problems. And the thing to keep in mind throughout all this is the economic crisis isn't necessary. It doesn't have to happen. No. The, right. We can we can do things to basically put the economy on hold. 
uh, you know, provide supplemental income yeah. for people who have been uh, laid off uh, due to the stay-at-home orders, suspend uh, rents and uh, mortgages and uh, evictions and defaults so that people don't lose their homes. We can give everybody health care so that in our own in employer-based healthcare system where the minute you lose your job, you lose your healthcare in the midst of a pandemic. That's just crazy. We can address all these things. If we yeah. have the political will, we can do it. Uh, if we don't and we say, oh, well, you know, markets yeah. and uh, leave it up to individuals to fend for themselves, themselves, it's going to be a fucking shit show, Nick. Yeah, it's going to yeah. it's going to be a shit show out there for uh, 60, 70, 80 percent of Americans. Correct. My name is Ashton. I'm calling from Fort Worth, Texas. My question is, what do you all think the aftermath of the virus is going to be economically, um, specifically corporate responsibility towards broader communities? and uh, maybe increased protections for small businesses um, since those are the people most affected by this whole social distancing shutdown that we have going on. And maybe if there will be a balance shift towards serving corporate interests now to serving small businesses and individual interests more. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Have a great day. Bye. So are things going to change better in the aftermath of the virus? I, I sure as hell hope so, Ashton, but uh, I, I'm not hopeful. How about you, Nick? Yeah, again, I was baffled by how passive people were in the face of these super unfair arrangements before the virus. So, uh, you know, it's really hard for me to judge where people are going to come out after it. And it it really will be interesting to see where people land after this crisis? Uh, do they continue to buy this neoliberal lie that when the rich get richer, everyone is better off and that you're we're all better off on our own and that government is the enemy, not uh, an instrument of us all to solve the collective action problems that we all face? Like, are people going to continue to subscribe to this idea that government should be small enough so that we can drown it in a bathtub? Are people going to continue to vote people into office who sign pledges saying, uh, I will never pass uh, a tax? Like, I have no idea. I just, it just baffles me that people did it in the first place. So, so this is the thing, uh, Ashton. Don't expect corporations to decide to be more responsible all by their, themselves. It, it's going to take uh, pressure from consumers, uh, from workers. It's going to take organizing. I mean, you see some hopeful signs already. Uh, Kroger, the, the 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 second largest supermarket company, announced at least temporarily was it a two or three dollar. Uh, increase per hour in hazard pay over the course of the pandemic. Uh, you had a, a company like, uh, I think it's, they're called Darden, which controls uh, a restaurant group that owns places like Olive Garden, that after just being hammered publicly announced that all of their employees would uh, now get paid sick leave. And it, you know, the, the hope is that as we, we claw back at these gains and and uh, over the course of the pandemic, uh, that once we once workers have these things, they won't be taken away again. 
but they're not going to happen uh, simply because it's the right thing to do and uh, employers feel bad for their workers. It's only going to happen if people demand it and uh, fight for it. Yeah, so it, it will be interesting to see. And, you know, it's really striking. Again, you know, nothing like a deadly pandemic to make all this stuff vivid. So all of my friends on Wall Street are hiding in their homes in the Hamptons. But the people our government thinks should not earn any more than $7.25 an hour are on the front lines dealing with this crisis every day at work. It's just astonishing that the people who basically create no value in our society, but who earn just jillions per year, uh, hide while you know the folks who work at grocery stores uh, still have to go to work to make sure that people continue to get food. And, you know, like these are the people that Mitch McConnell thinks should not earn any more than $7 and 25 cents an hour. It's just, it's just unbelievable. With a tip penalty, right? Yeah. Cause you want to take yeah, that, yeah, you want to take, that's you want right. to take like the, the first five bucks of tips out and give it to your employer. Yeah. Speaking of which, right. uh, public service announcement right here, folks. If you're somebody who's just lucky like Nick in general or lucky like me to be able to work from home and still collect my full paycheck, if you're doing okay through this and like me, you are uh, ordering groceries or if you are ordering takeout food and you're having stuff delivered, tip these folks, goddammit, and not the usual 20%. Tip them 25, 30, 40%. These people are putting their lives on the line to bring you food. And you can afford it right now because you're actually not spending money going out to restaurants and going to bars and, and going on vacation and so forth. So those of us who are fortunate to, to have an income and keep it throughout this and are relying on these low-wage workers to uh, keep us alive, my God, show your appreciation and throw them a tip because they don't just deserve it, they need it. And if you are still shopping, uh, absolutely be sure to shop from small local businesses, businesses you love that you want to survive this disaster uh, because uh, if you don't, they're all going to go away and we're just going to have uh, Walmarts and Amazon and Olive Gardens from here on out. Hey, uh, Nick, uh, this is uh, Billy from Orlando. My question is, uh, I'm going to keep from rambling a little bit, but um, I'm interested, we're going to know how much this is going to cost us to react to this kind of a situation. I'm curious to see what it would really cost for us to ramp up and protect us before it happens, to have a system in place that can at least minimize our, our, our expense to re responding like this. Uh, we're just so much smarter than this. That's one. And then two, I'd be interested to know relative to the cost of the tax breaks that the rich got a few years ago, how much that would be compared to what we can build to protect us in the future. Good luck. Stay safe. Thank you. Take care. So Billy from Orlando asks the broad question, how much it would have cost to prepare for a pandemic like this? And, you know, Goldie, you and I have been saying, you know, a pathogen is one thing, a pandemic is another, right? right. You don't have to, right. pathogens uh, will come and go. Pandemics are a consequence of bad leadership, bad preparation, and uh, wishful thinking. Right, right. and that, that's why the United States had a uh, pandemic prevention and preparedness team until Trump fired them 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it was a quote unquote waste of money. Right, yeah. right. I, I think I think Nick, you would agree that, that this is like the classic case of being uh, a billion wise and trillion foolish. Yeah, exactly. And it certainly, I mean, of course, you know, you and I are no experts on what it would have cost precisely to have been prepared, but it certainly could not have cost the country any more than a few tens of billions of dollars to have masks and ventilators and some sort of national testing regime and a fully functioning FEMA and so on and so forth to deal with this eventuality. Uh, and that may sound like a lot of money, but not compared to the $1.3 trillion tax cut uh, we mostly gave rich people two years ago, right? right? Like it's, it's almost nothing to be prepared for something like this relative to the yeah, rest. It's, it's Jeff Bezos' couch change. Exactly. And is it unforgivable that we are not prepared? Absolutely. But that's what you get when you elect people who believe that government isn't the solution, government is the problem. And as for the larger uh, economic issue of how to prepare Americans in terms of providing paid sick leave, paid family medical leave, uh, adequate income, access to uh, health insurance, et cetera, I, I don't think those things cost anything. To be honest, I think that if Americans were prepared with uh, a social safety net and adequate labor standards, that's a plus economically. Everybody does better. That's not expensive. It doesn't cost anything in the long run because it pays for itself. Yeah, but rich people wouldn't be as rich. Okay, next question. Hey, Nick. This is Trevor Eeks. I'm calling from Ciudad of Peru, where the entire country is currently on quarantine lockdown. I think the most interesting thing right now that could be asked is, why is it that it seems in the United States, the poor, the working class, and just most people with a job in many sectors who are now out of work are still being expected to pay rent and utilities and taxes when other countries like France are removing those burdens? It seems to me that the United States or that we as a country cannot expect the poor and the people who are most vulnerable, who no longer have jobs or sources of income to continue to not get paid, but to allow rich people and banks and big companies to continue to get paid while this crisis continues. So I'd be really happy to hear your thoughts about this. Thanks for everything you do. Love the show. Take care. I think the answer, Nick, is because we're our, our nation is sociopathic. Well, I think our nation is neoliberal. Okay, our leaders are sociopaths. <laughs> our leaders are neoliberal. You know, that, that that's a question for Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate. Why have we privileged bailing out big companies over uh, making sure that working and middle-class families are going to be okay? Well, that's trickle-down economics. When the rich get richer, that's good for everybody. When the poor get richer, well, that's very, very expensive. And, you know, our great challenge is to turn all this stuff from being upside down, right side up. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to defend industries that are vulnerable, but I do believe that that, that is necessary. But there are smart ways to do it and stupid ways to do it. And one of the reasons that we're having to bail out all of these industries, of course, is that the industries themselves have been made fragile by decades of, you know, shareholder value maximization, neoliberalism, right? That, that those companies 
didn't think about building resilience. They didn't think about using their excess cash flows to keep on the balance sheet should something bad happen. Instead, they distributed them to their shareholders in the form of dividends or stock buybacks or giant bonuses for executives. And as a consequence, those those companies and those industries are unbelievably fragile right now. Right. You know, so again, in our country, we privatized the gains, right? The shareholders got the benefit of all those dividends and, share, and stock buybacks, but now we're socializing the costs. So the American taxpayer will now bail out these companies. And well, we're, so, we're socializing the cost of uh, bailing out uh, corporate America. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're not bailing out America. And I think the, the American people, and I think this is a, a huge mistake because in an economy where uh, consumer spending accounts for 70% of GDP, when you push uh, millions of households into bankruptcy and default, well, that's going to trickle up to the rest of the economy. At this point, neither of us are hopeful, but we really just, what we need to do is dump cash into the bank accounts of the American people and keep them going uh, until we get through this pandemic, and then maybe we can pick up where we left off. Yeah. But if we allow the debts to accumulate and the 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 late fees and the penalties to be added on, uh, it's it's just going to be a disaster. Right. Hello, Pitchfork Economics. This is Leslie in Detroit. My question is, what is the reason for stock buybacks? Why do stock buybacks exist? What purpose do they serve? Um, this legislation to um, limit, to stop stock buybacks for one year. What purpose does that serve? What bad thing would happen if stock buybacks were eliminated permanently, if they were permanently outlawed? Thank you. Okay, so Leslie raises uh, the question of what are stock buybacks and what are they for and what would happen if they went away? One of our favorite, we, we've come back to this so many times, uh, Goldie, and Stock buybacks are simply a way for corporations to use their profits in a tax-efficient way to reward uh, their existing shareholders and executives who get compensated in stock. And it works like this. You make a bunch of money, and instead of paying your workers more or investing in more production or sticking the money in the bank, you buy your own stock. And when you buy your own stock, you reduce the number of shares, which means that the existing shareholders all earn a bigger portion of the company because right. you've retired the shares and you simultaneously push the price of the stock up, benefiting existing shareholders. Right, right. As we've pointed out on many occasions, uh, there's two ways to boost earnings per share. One is to increase your earnings, which is difficult and risky. And the other is to reduce the number of shares, which is yeah. a surefire. It works every time. And yeah, so exactly. they, they choose the easy way out, which is to reduce the number of shares. Rather than making better products right, uh, and selling them to more people. And there's another secret to this, which is that because the executives of most companies get most of their compensation in stock, what they're doing is they're issuing stock to give that stock to those executives. 
So they're diluting their existing shareholders when they do that. But if you do stock buybacks, you wash out that dilution. Right. So it's this very sort of handy way of making the effect of giving stock options in mass to executives. It's a way of masking that effect. Right. The giant CEO pay, Nick, yeah. has been made possible by stock buybacks because this pay is largely in in stock. Correct. And if you continued to pay them, you know, 400 times the average worker and you paid them in stock, eventually you'd be diluting the shares of all the other shareholders. So you have to buy it back. Which they hate. Right. So anyway, so why do we hate stock buybacks so much? Mostly because it's such an obvious way of understanding the fundamental neoliberal lie that the more profits companies make, the better it is for everyone. That profits, high profits, are the source of the vitality of the economy and um, and the source of investment in the broader economy, which benefits everyone. Stock buybacks or how you know that mostly all companies do with their profits is enrich shareholders and senior executives. Right. It's just it's a very egregious way of doing that. And why do we care? Because today, uh, when all of these companies, again, we've used the airline industry because they're sort of a poster child for all oh, of this. Oh, Bo- Boeing, is, Bo- Boeing is the best is the best example right now. Yeah, because Boeing with its 737 MAX grounded over the past year was borrowing money to buy back stock and pay dividends. And now it's getting, what, a $17 billion bailout from from taxpayers? And of course, they could have not been doing buybacks. The airline industry over the last 10 years has used 96% of their cash flows on stock buybacks. Now, if they had kept that money and stuck it on their balance sheets, in this crisis, they would have resilience. They would be able right. to much better withstand this downturn. And instead, they enriched themselves, the, the executives enriched themselves and their shareholders. And now the, the American taxpayer is left holding the bag for that. And it's just, it, you know, what, what drives me crazy is those companies cannot go back to their shareholders and call all that money back. Like if you can send it out, why can't you claim it all back? Like that should be the first way that these companies withstand these downturns. And, and, and to be clear, stock buybacks used to be illegal. In, until 1982, stock buybacks were regarded by the uh, SEC as stock manipulation, which is what they are. Intentionally manipulating the price of the stock by reducing exactly. the number of shares. Exactly. And, right. and then in the neoliberal era, Ronald Reagan changed that rule uh, in the SEC, and uh, the rest is history. And you know, in the last few years, stock buybacks have uh, have ranged from between six hundred and eight hundred billion dollars per year. And you know, you could just think all of that money could have been used to pay for infrastructure or healthcare or education or whatever it is. Like all it was was just money that was shoveled into the bank accounts of, you know, really a very small minority of uh, Americans, you know, the richest Americans. And it, it just, it's just sort of an egregiously awful artifact of a neoliberal economy. So shorter, Nick, Leslie, uh, the purpose of stock buybacks is to make the rich richer while screwing everybody else. And that's why we hate them. There you go. Okay. So we have a question from email. 
Why are the big corporations asking for financial help when they had record profits in the past year? And, and, and just as importantly, Nick, uh, why are we giving it to them? Yeah. So the thing that's shocking about this, of course, is that the big corporations didn't have record profits last year. They've had record profits for a bunch of years. Corporations have done extraordinarily well over the last 10 years. You know, the percent of GDP that is corporate profits uh, has largely doubled from approximately 6% in the uh, 50s and 60s to almost 11 or 12% today. And the question we should all have is, given how profitable these folks have been over the last years, why do they need any help at all? And of course, the answer is that they, they didn't keep the money on their balance sheets to save for a rainy day like conservative, sensible people might. Uh, they shoveled it into the pockets of themselves and their shareholders. Mm -hmm. And so now most of them are very, very fragile, don't have a lot of running room. Uh, and uh, so uh, it's up to us to bail them out. And, you know, I argued strenuously before this latest bill that just passed Congress that any help that went to corporations should be in the form of uh, an investment with preferential shares, that we shouldn't loan companies money to bail them out. We should buy stock in their company if they need it. And that stock should be owned on behalf of the American people. Right, right. right. And and unfortunately, <laughs> nobody listened. Yeah. Do, do we need to save Boeing and the airlines? You know, obviously, you know, you need to save the one of the two large aircraft manufacturers in the world. And yes, we need an airline industry when this is over and people start flying again. But my God, make the shareholders take a haircut. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I don't mind bailing out Boeing and the airlines for the sake of uh, their employees and the and the the consumers who use their products, but don't bail out the shareholders. Not the shareholders. Yeah. The shareholders gambled. They made a bet. It's Wall Street is a giant casino. Yeah, it's not investing when you buy shares. You're you're betting that it goes up. Yeah. Correct. So I just, you know, it's like, uh, oh man, I put all my money on black and the roulette wheel came up red. I need a bailout. Yeah, absolutely. That just, it's infuriating. Yeah, it is indeed. But there we are. Capitalism. Neoliberalism. <laughs> well, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Heidi Scherholz. Uh, she's an economist for EPI about the uh, the federal stimulus, what's in it and how it's supposed to work, and uh, the pluses and minuses. should be really interesting. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.